Of the Survival Podcast is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't, today is Monday, March the 15th, and this is episode 2841 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to take a look at how to view investing as an agorist, someone who believes that the market is, is right, even when the state is wrong, and simply serves the market. I mean, that's really the, the, the best way I can describe an agorist. And I, I'm going to stay right now at the beginning of the show. There's two ways to say agorist. There's agorist and agorist. And um, Sam, Sam Konkin, the third, who's probably the best-known voice of this entire uh, movement, uh, is the author of several books, said agorist. So if he says agorist, I'm going to say agorist, and everybody else can deal with it. And you can go argue with the ghost of Sam Konkin. Anyway... Um, I was recently on uh, the Corbett Report, which I was really honored to be uh, invited to. And I was on the Corbett Report along with Sal Mayweather, who's my cohort, Sal the Agorist at UnloosetheGoose.com, and uh, Tim, and I'm, I hope I'm saying his name right, Tim Pichet, uh, P-I-C-C-I-O-T, Pichot, Pichet, it's something like that. I don't remember from the interview, it was, uh, it was a few days ago, and... My memory is not going great, but he's a really cool dude as well. And we talked about this viewpoint because Corbett had brought it up with his audience. And if you've not heard of Corbett, he's a really big-time podcaster, uh, does a lot of great work. And they had said, well, how does an agorist invest? What, what makes, you know, and, and some of it was from the Star of the Beast model, right, which, which agorists are pretty good at doing. Um, but I wanted to take a more broad view, and I think, you know, I'm going to say Jeff gave, uh, Corbett gave me every freaking opportunity to say anything I had to say in the time that was available. But all in, with three people talking, and actually four because you have a host, we had about 45 minutes to discuss this. And I think this is a much deeper uh, topic, and I wanted to come at this today from a very broad view of what is an investment in the first place. We all talk about investing, but so many people, if you ask them what an investment is, they don't really have a great answer. And again, it's one of those things that's not the fault of the person because they don't teach you this in school. There's, if you look at it, the most fundamental things for us to learn, and I think education is a form of investment, um, are the things that we are taught the least of in the 13 years that we're held captive in the indoctrination, oh, I mean education system, Right. And then it goes on to college, university, et cetera, trade school, whatever, if you, if you go on to there. And in, in most instances, I still don't think they actually teach you the most fundamentally important things for a human being to know and understand. And those are things like, you know, how to provide food for yourself, right, how to provide housing for yourself. But it is also like monetary literacy. Monetary literacy is incredibly important to even know that a concept exists. And if the concept, if you do know the concept exists, understand the concept in depth. And so we don't learn what money is in school. The definition they give us is inadequate. It is completely completely inadequate to describe the concept of money. And we certainly don't explain money. And, and a child that goes through 13 years of school, K through 12, comes out of high school, ready to pursue you know, the next adventure in the world and be a, you know, an adult and whatever, can't tell you what money is. I guarantee you, if you pulled 500 high school students that are honor roll students off the street at random, 
almost none of them would give a full, complete, well-understood definition of the term money. So if they're not going to explain money to you, they can't explain investments to you because while they're not always together, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. So most people don't even know what an investment is, so we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to talk about how to leverage investments so that you can have more tomorrow than you do today, which is a pretty good clue as to what an investment is supposed to be anyway. With that, before we dig into this, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of day number one today is the Free State Project. Um, liberty, I think investing in the cause of liberty makes sense. The return is more liberty in the future for yourself or your heirs or maybe even their heirs. And uh, the Free State Project has probably done more for the cause of liberty in the United States than any other single entity has, period. I, I really mean that because what they did was they got a group of people together and said, we're going to go to a single state and we're going to drag it, even if it's against its will, kicking and screaming toward liberty. That doesn't mean they've done everything perfectly or they've got everything right, but they've made incredible, incredible advancements for the cause of liberty in the state of New Hampshire. They chose that state for their project because it had a huge body of government versus a small body of population. It's a highly representative government. That means that you know when you talk to your rep down the road, you actually have his ear and maybe you can get some things done. Maybe not, but you can try. They've also taken a lot of other approaches. What I've loved about every event that I've ever been to at the Free State Projects, I've sat at tables with pure anarchists like myself, um, small government libertarians, and people that are actively in the state legislature, all at the same table, and everybody gets along. I've really never experienced anything quite like it, and you can learn more about it by taking a vacation. That's right, you can just visit New Hampshire. In fact, you can go to fsp.org, fsp, Frank Sierra Papa, dot org, forward slash, forward slash, visit NH, V-I-S-I-T-N-H, real simple. And you can learn how you can take a vacation and tie into the people in the network that's up there. So you can have a great time, but you can also get a little bit better understanding of what goes on behind the scenes. It's a great way to stick your toe in the water and see if this is right for you. Check them out today again at fsp.org. Next up, knifekits.com. You know, I'm going to talk to you today about investments, and I think skill sets are an investment. And that's because there's so little out there as far as people today who know how to do things, to get stuff done. One of the really cool things about knifekits.com is not only does it let you participate in a great hobby, or maybe eventually evolve it into a business, it teaches you skills as you go. And you can start out very, very basic, a full kit knife, where all you're doing is fitting handle materials and setting some pins and doing the final you know, sharpening and stuff like that, all the way to the point of taking your own stock and building a knife from the ground up that's your own design. And you've got kind of a bridge between the two there. Knifekits.com is an amazing company. I have never had a complaint about Knifekits.com, not once. They have been a sponsor. Since 2010, it's 2021, 11 years, and I've never had a single complaint. Some of my best sponsors, I've had some things, hey, guys, you need to take care of this, whatever, and they're great, and I have no, no complaints about having to do that. But to have one that I've never had to do anything with other than say, hey, do you want to stay a sponsor, uh, renew your sponsorship membership, that's amazing, a decade plus. Check them out today at knifekits.com. With that, let's start digging into this. I think this is a really great subject to go into right now. Because the world is in a state of flux. And when you are in a state of flux and a state of shift, what you have is something that markets generally overall hate, and that is uncertainty. When you want to see markets do really well, even when what you're certain of is not great, it's generally during periods of certainty. When you have to speculate, not which of these three is going to do best in the sector that we know will do well, 
but which sector might do well maybe, people get a little bit more conservative with their investments and a lot less money flows into things. And because of that, you have less of a boom time and more of a bust time or a flat time or sideways time. When money pours into investments, those investments, inevitably, some of them are well-timed and well-made. And since they're investing in a thing, the ability of something to do something, those things begin to, to bear fruit like a tree. And when that happens, you get into the, the model of a rising tide floating all boats. Well, sometimes during periods of uncertainty, that happens in some areas and not others. Sometimes in periods of certainty, even when you think everything's going to be well, they're not. There's a lot of potential for things to go wrong, I guess. I don't know if there's ever been a time in history with more potential for things to go wrong right now. I mean, really, there is so many dumb bets that our government is making right now alone and dumb bets that people are making. And I don't know about you, but I've been incredibly disheartened over the past year to see how bad it really is with people's willingness to sell out their own freedom for perceived safety in absence of any real facts to state that it even is a good play. Right, this belief that if we just listen to Fauci, who's basically, you know, might as well be tongue kissing the CCP over in China, and you're trusting the sleazebag that's a 45 year bureaucrat. I mean, my God, with giving up your liberty and walking around with a muzzle on. That to me is actually very, it's far more concerning than I think it is to most people. Because all I can think of is, oh my God, what's next? And I know that might seem like it, it, it fits in with investing, but it does. Because that's the period of uncertainty you're entering. And when we get into periods of uncertainty, the way that we make good decisions is we make the best investments that we can, given the resources that we have, with extensive diversity of investment. And I've said this before, but I have to say it again today. If your financial advisor tells you you're well diversified because you have mutual funds that invest in bonds, Small cap stocks, mid cap stocks, growth and income stocks, and, 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 you know, long term blue chip stocks and those five asset classes, you are not diversified and you don't have a financial advisor. You have a financial liar. And most of them are. They really are. Because what you're invested in is 100% paper equities backed by U.S. dollars. That's not diversity. That's the very, that's the very essence of a lack of diversity. All your, all your investments are actually the same. They're just in different areas within that sameness. Now, if your financial advisor says, within the things that I do, you're well diversified, and you can and should invest in things outside of what I do, well, you know what? Then you're probably dealing with an honest man who can probably do a good job for you with what he's dealing with. My big problem with most financial advisors is whether they say they get paid by commissions, fees, whatever, I don't care. It's always tied one way or another to the value of your investment. Um, I won't get deep into that today, but just know that, yes, a, an, an advisor makes more money managing $2 million than 100000 And so the long-term way to win as an investment advisor, if you're concerned about raw numbers, is to convince your client base that every spare dollar that they have that can be that anything can be done with in the concept of an investment belongs with you and most of them only have this very limited portfolio of investments i mean it looks like a lot because we now have more 
we have now more mutual funds than we have stocks. And all the mutual funds are just made up of stocks. I mean, that's how asinine it's gotten. But they have a limitation as to what they can do under the bounds of their law, their license, the law and the license they carry, etc. And most of them are do. They're not even bad people. I I, I really kind of hate it when I call them financial liars, um, in some ways, because they're doing what they were taught to do and what they were trained to do, and most of them fully believe in what they're doing. But it doesn't mean that you should trust them to do that for you. What you should trust a financial advisor to do for you is you take this bucket, and this bucket is for U.S. dollars, and maybe there's some Forex and stuff in there too, but this is for paper investments of money. And then you have different vehicles, like you have standard investments that you're going to pay taxes on as the money comes in. You have tax-deferred, you have tax-exempt, you have things like structural retirement accounts like Roth or conventional IRAs, right? And, and that's what they do for you. And that's fine if they're good at what they do. And that's a big if. But if they are, fine. But that if that is your only form of investing, you're sunk in this new world that we're going into. So when we look at investing as an agorist, a lot of times we just write that whole first piece out. Like, well, if you're using stocks and bonds and an Roth IRA, that's not agorism. Okay, is it agorism in the way that we conventionally throw the word around? No. Is it a smart investment for an agorist to make? That's a totally different question, and I answer it completely differently with yes, it is. That some portion of our money belongs in that sort of vehicle because it's traditionally done well for people. And, and so what I want to open up with really is, I yes, I hate the state, but I don't defy it just to defy it. I defy it when it serves me to do so. So here's an example. When you were a little kid back in school and they actually taught you a few useful skills way back then, if you're old like me, one of the things you probably learned in like kindergarten or first grade, they had like officer friendly or some kind of dog or something come in in a suit and tell you like, look both ways before you cross the street, look left, right and left again, you know, whatever, right? Like, and, and so the government clearly thinks that it's in your best interest to look both ways before you cross the street. Okay. So are you going to defy the government just out of spite, just out of ideology? Man, if the government said to do this, I shouldn't do it. And so many people in the agorist, libertarian, anarcho, ANCAP, etc. Uh, frame of mind seem to have this misguided ideology. They Maybe, maybe they don't even practice it. In, in, so they, they do look both ways before they cross the street, but they haven't really thought about it that way. So they don't sit down and go, well, maybe... Even though the government says I should do this, I should do this even though the government says it. And they don't link it to something simple like looking both ways before you cross the street. You know, the government tells us that if there's bad weather to turn the news on and, and make sure that we're weather aware. If the broken clock is right twice a day. This is good advice. So I think it's really important to not abstain from an investment or an action that's in your best interest just because the state happens to agree that it's a good idea. Likewise, I think with some understanding of mitigation of risk, we should not not engage in an activity or not engage in investment or not engage in anything just because the state says we shouldn't, especially when they say you should not, but there's no actual law or enforceable law to prevent you from doing it. Um, if we look at cryptocurrency, which is a great investment, and, and, and Agoras love to talk about it, The advice of government and the financial institutions and everybody in power was stay away from this, and now they're all co-opting it. So they were wrong. 
So the best advice you could have taken in regard to Bitcoin was to do everything exactly the opposite of what the Goldman Sachs and the government said to do. If you had done that since 2011, you wouldn't even be listening to me because you'd be a billionaire on your own island right now. And so would I. If I had completely went all in, yeah, I, I, I would probably still be doing the podcast maybe two days a week from the island of Jakistan, right? Um, but don't defy the state just because the state said so. The state says to wash your hands. And I mean, oh, it's been overplayed with COVID and all, but don't you think washing your hands in general is pretty good advice? So you're not going to like go home tonight after you work, get home from work, go out, work in your garden, have dirt like up under your fingernails and shit, and be like, it's time to eat, but I'm not going to wash my hands because the government said so. So don't defy the state solely to defy the state. Defy the state when it is in your best interest to do so. So now let's move on to what is an investment. And I kind of started out with most people don't even know what an investment really is. And then uh, the way I look at it, I, I, I consider it any action that can potentially increase the value of a given commodity. Right. So and when I say commodity here, I'm not using it in this rigorous, you know, studious way that says, well, this is a commodity and this is money. Right. Or this is a resource and this is a commodity. No, I'm saying when I use commodity, here, I'm using a very generic term. Any action that I can take that puts something into motion, right, that takes the underlying thing that I remain having some control over or at least I benefit from in some way, if that increases in value, then that's a good investment. So notice that I had the word potentially increase in value. If it can't potentially increase in value, it's not an investment. If it fails to increase in value, it was a bad investment. If it was never going to increase in value, but you were convinced that it was, that means that's not an investment, right? But when you examine something and say, if these things work the way that they should, then this can be worth more tomorrow than it is today. The action that you take and the, and the, the, the money or assets that you tender into that, you stake against it, are an investment. And it's also something, an action that could potentially serve to advance a cause, If that's important to you, then that's your return. So I look at charity. We'll talk a little bit about that more. But I look at charity as an investment. And the reason I'm willing to invest in a charity isn't because I believe that having money is bad and that I should give my icky money away to somebody else who's, who's a better person than me. right? They're a better human than I am or something like that. and Have some kind of rich guy guilt or some shit. No. And, and, and while I do see the... The advantage that if I invest my money, I can deduct some of that from my taxes is keeping money away from the state, and that is an agorist strategy if there ever was one. What I'm really doing is I'm investing in the charity's ability, which I believe outweighs my own. So if there's a charity, for instance, that's, that's helping people in the middle of, a, of, a, of some sort of crisis, and I write them a check for $100, I'm only doing that. Because I believe that $100 can do more to help what's important to me than I could myself. If I'm doing it for any other reason, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry, I am. Because I'm basically giving somebody $100 and saying, hey, go do something good with this. When, if that's as little as I'm going to invest, if that charity can't leverage that money to give a higher return, I'm better off taking out the phone listings online since there's no phone books anymore randomly picking a person that lives in that area and mailing them a check for $100. I might as well. I'm better off. I know that 100% of that money is going to go into that community, and if there's a bad thing that happened there, that person's probably hurting. 
And if I could drill down and find, you know, not somebody lying on GoFundMe or something, I can actually find someone who really did get hurt by the event. Me sending them $100 directly is, is not really an ROI directly, but it's a better, it's a better way to spend that money than giving it to an entity, a, a non-for-profit entity. Unless that not-for-profit entity is so good at what they do, they can do more with that $100 than I can or the person I hand it to. Because they're buying in bulk, they're moving more materials, they're doing more logistics, they have a large plethora of volunteers. If they don't have that, if I don't have confidence that that $100 will do more in their pocket than it will from my hand to a person directly, I'm not giving it to them. I see it as an investment. And that's to advance a cause. It doesn't have to be a charity for it to advance a cause. I think pulling your children out of, out of government school and self-educating your children with high-quality you know, materials, especially like something like we use, like Excellus Academy, is an incredible investment in a cause, which is my children, or in the case my grandchildren, being better educated than the people, their contemporaries, and being able to think freely. And the impact that they will have long after I'm dead, having that free thinker out there actually thinking for themselves in a world of people who can't do it anymore. That's an advancement of a cause. That's an investment. And then the other way I define an investment is something that can be set into motion. Otherwise, it's just your personal labor and trade. So I'm not saying that sweat equity is not an investment. But at some point, the thing that you're doing, if it's an investment, no longer requires you to be doing something or is doing more than you doing the thing could cause to happen. So if I build a business, it's an investment as long as there's things that business does that are independent of me. Or as long as that business is generating money while I'm sleeping. That would be a good example of the Survival Podcast. The Survival Podcast really, in its state right now anyway, if I die, it's done. But you know what? I believe that a lot of you that are MSB members and all, with over 2,000 episodes, what is it, almost 3,000 episodes now? Um, 2,841 episodes as of today, with all that legacy content back there, with all the value that I built into MSB, I don't think that the business itself would cease if I died tomorrow. I think that my wife would be receiving revenue for quite a while before it kind of like began to like decline. And when I was in bed last night, some of some new people joined MSB. Okay, we made money. All the stuff that I have out that are part of the, the things that earn money from advertising and stuff, that stuff went on all weekend. While I spent my weekend with my family. So there's an investment. If you try to start a podcast tomorrow and you were every bit as good as I was, you're not going to have what I have the next day. You're going to have a quarter million listeners. So the actions set in motion the building of a brand that has its own power. If you are a drywaller and all you do is like subcontract drywall work, it's not an investment. It's a glorified job with a little bit more freedom in it. And it's really important that we understand that, that what you're doing must set something into motion that at least in some part operates independent of your physical activity or you're on a bike pedaling to generate electricity with no battery. So let's look at that analogy to, to really get this. If I have a, a bike and I get on that bike and I pedal that bike and it makes energy, the little generator plugged on it. And it runs whatever it runs while I'm on the bike, and when I get off, it stops. There's no investment. There's no investment there. That energy did a thing, and immediately when I stopped, it stopped. If it runs some stuff, 
But what I'm putting into it, right, is in excess of the current need. And there's a battery, and all the surplus energy goes in the battery. That piece is the investment. That can now be used later while I'm not working. That's one way to think about it as well. That's even still limited, though. Because once the battery's empty until I get back on there. But if I figure out, hey, hey, I could hook up some propellers to this thing, stick it outside in the wind, and it would generate electricity every time the wind blows, now it's a lot more like an investment, isn't it? As a system. Ah, digress, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So what actions and items do I see is investments. And as an agorist, I'm not going to differentiate then and say, well, as an agorist, I'll invest in A, but not B. Right? Number one, the number one investment that I see in the world, historically speaking, is property. I don't think you can take gold, you know, uh, anything, and, and nothing has the track record of the value of property. Now, I'm talking about real property here, real estate. <sighs> It is the ultimate in a fixed quantity asset. We're not going to have any more land than we have right now. If you listen to the alarmists, we're going to have less because the oceans are going to flood and Florida is going to be an island or whatever, you know. Um, but seriously, like property has the potential to be leveraged in so many ways beyond the value of its underlying leverage. So even somebody with a couple acres can produce food. They can throw in some tiny houses and run Airbnb. I mean, honestly, the fact that we have a nation that probably has more property owners per capita than any other nation on the planet is part of why we are the wealthiest nation. But it's also sad in how many people make no gains or values with their property other than the direct equity gain, which puts you in league with everybody else. So everybody that bought the four-bedroom house on Maple Street that's about the same size as your house and about the same size lot has the same amount of appreciation, right? It's a normalized investment in that way. Bill's house down the road that's pretty much like yours has been well-maintained, pretty much like yours. If your house sells for about 350000 and he sells his next month, his real estate agent is literally going to use the sale value of your house to set the sale value of his house, uh, plus or minus anything that's happened in the interim. They'll get three or four comparable houses. They'll use that for an appraisal, right? So the, the problem with that investment strategy of buying and holding property alone is that it's not doing anything for you beyond anybody else. And believe it or not, this is a competitive world because you have the insidious concept of inflation in the background that's keeping you from realizing all your gains. Plus, you only cash in on the equity gain of a property when you sell it. If you don't sell it, you've, got, you've gained nothing in reality except a bigger tax bill when the government reassesses your property. So property is a great investment, but we have to think about how do we leverage that investment. You know, if you want to buy a piece of land somewhere and you're like, I can't afford it, what you're missing is how do I make the land pay for itself? Can I put something on that property that I lease, rent, etc., that just covers the property? Even if I don't make any direct cash flow, if what comes in covers what goes out with a little bit of mitigation in the way in case I need to fix something that breaks, it's huge because somebody else is buying my equity for me. And it's sad that we don't understand that in America. And the only thing that's kind of like 
slap people in the head and said, hey, McFly, remember the movie, right, McFly, right, um, is Airbnb. Airbnb, and if you look at what it's done, it's, it's disproportionately exploded property values in areas that are hot for Airbnb. We have houses in places, like we stayed in Broken Bow over the holiday, the, the Christmas, New Year's holiday. My wife and I went away by ourselves for a few days of Broken Bow. And there, we stayed in a house. It's like two bedrooms plus a loft. And you look at it. It was really nice cabin-style house. Beautifully designed. Nicely laid out. Good quality construction equipment. But this house is worth $200,000 in reality. right? Houses like it in Broken Bow are selling for $600,000 to $800,000. Simply because, hey, I can rent this thing out 25 days a month for $500 a day. And therefore, it's worth whatever I can still earn an ROI against. And that's why Airbnb has been great for individuals, but bad for communities. It's overinflated property values. But if we use that mentality, we can think about how do I buy a property where I don't have to compete with those people, but I can get what they get, which is an ROI that pays for the property. So property to me is huge, not just because of what it's done traditionally, but what you can do with it. Another investment, and people don't really see this, except mechanics understand that it's an investment, uh, and maybe other trade professionals, is tools. And those can be hand tools, power tools, I don't care what. A tool, by its nature, is an investment. You, you, you have to think about it this way. Let's look at it like one of the most simple, basic tools that humans have developed and can purchase in a store for not much money. A crosscut saw. A crosscut saw. Just a simple, you know, for sawing like two by four, two by sixes in half. Okay. You can buy a crosscut, a good crosscut saw for, I'm going to guess here off the top of my head, say 25 to 50 bucks. And I know they don't make things like they used to, but you can probably spend 50 and get a really good one. And what this makes me think of when it comes to investments is that my, my grandfather had a crosscut and a rip saw that hung on the back of his workbench. And how many boards I cut in half with the crosscut saw and how many boards I ripped with the rip saw. And looking at that saw and thinking about my grandfather and the type of environment I was in, and this would have been the 1980s, I know that that saw had been around since the 40s. So 40, 50 years. He probably paid a couple dollars, which was probably more than $50 at the time for that saw. And somewhere, that saw is probably still cutting, cutting wood today. And so what is the value of being able to sever a board to the length you desire relative to the cost of the saw? And if it happens to be a, you know, a, a chop saw that's powered and it, it, it's even faster, then, then that relative value goes up, but the cost of the underlying asset goes up. So while that saw may not be worth a lot more tomorrow than it is today, the results of having that saw are the ROI. So I think we need to look at our tools as investments, and that leads to always be frugal, never be cheap. That leads to one of my laws of life. When I buy a tool, since it's an investment, how often is this thing going to be used, and relative to that, how long can it last, and what does it cost me? Next, I think all of our homestead systems, if we do them right, potentially can be positive investments. You can make, you can build a system on a, on a homestead that doesn't work out well, and you don't end up getting a good ROI to it. But if it didn't have the potential, you probably wouldn't have tried it. So not all our investments pan out. 
But when we look at our homesteads and we've put some sort of system into place, if the, the, the way we decide do we continue to maintain this system and continue to use it or do we scratch it and do something else is, is the ROI positive? So when I put in a backyard pond, like a Miyagi pond, and then two years later I have six and a half, eight pound catfish swimming around in it, that I can just literally go out there and harvest fish for my table anytime I want, that's a pretty good return of investment. And yeah, the $1,100 bucks of materials to build that thing, you can buy a lot of catfish for $1,100, but once you get to the $1,101 worth of fish, that's it. Everything else is gravy. And that assumes that it only does one thing for me. If I use it to grow plants that I eat, there's a value. If I use it to grow plants that I sell, there's a value. If it provides me with happiness and joy and supports the ecosystem and makes everything else work better on the property, that's a return. If we have a system that somebody puts in place that automates the opening and closing of their chicken coop, okay, that's an investment because now that labor is spent elsewhere. So good systems of any kind are always great investments that we should be making as, as agorists and as people in general. I think trees and plants are the essence of investing. I don't know that they're, you know, I said property is probably one of the best, if not the best overall investment strategies to look at. But I think one of the reasons it's so powerful is because we can add something like trees and plants to it. So really think about this. You buy your little house on Maple Street little post stamp yard, and they've pushed down all the trees. So you go down to the, the you know, Home Depot, Lowe's, local nursery, whatever, and you buy yourself, you know, I don't know, just a couple oak trees, you know, and maybe a maple or two. And you plant a few in the backyard, maybe one great big one in the front yard. And those trees cost you somewhere between $15 and $30 a tree, and you put them in the ground. 20 years later, All those trees have grown to where if you go outside and try to bear hug them, you can't get your arms around them. How much more is your house worth? How much more is your property worth because of that? And this is a non-productive tree. I know I said maple, but let's say you live where you can't make maple syrup, and the oaks are you know, some kind of oak that the nuts are kind of tannic and bitter, and you wouldn't really do anything with them, and they don't even have, like even squirrels kind of walk over them on their way to the bird feeder. They still have this incredible value that they've transformed to the property because people like trees. They're beautiful. They provide shade. And they take a long time to grow. You can't just make another one. Very few people would look at a healthy, beautiful, large oak that's not causing some kind of problem because it was planted in a bad place and say, I'll sell that for $15. What's that tree worth in raw lumber? What is a large 50-year-old, straight, high-quality, something like a, uh, a white oak or a silky oak worth in timber versus the 15 bucks you bought it with or the free acorn you stuck in a ground and, and took care of. It's, it's, it's a return that even makes a Bitcoin owner go, ah, that's pretty good. It's not as scalable. It's not as easy. requires some other things, but it's a massive investment. Now, what if that tree produces for you? When I was uh, living in Pennsylvania for a while, I moved my family up there for the job that I had uh, a job or two before I started TSB. Um, I found this really great farm only a few miles from my house that I could hunt on. And the front of that yard, there were two trees. One was a walnut tree, which I sat under and hunted squirrels with my son extensively. And the other was a pear. 
And the pear was, to this day, the biggest pear tree I've ever seen in my life. It was enormous. And the two old ladies, that one was, uh, they were sisters, and the one was the, the wife of the farmer that had passed away, and she was leasing the farm to others and stuff. She told me that tree was planted by her husband the year they got married. And she had to be 90. And that there were more pears that came off that tree every year than they could ever hope to use or give away. And they let us take as many as we want whenever we wanted. What's the ROI on that pear tree? Let's forget the timber, the size, the beauty, just on food production. So when we look at things like blackberry plants, etc. And then we can even take from there, like if you plant blackberries, they I don't know if you know this, they kind of multiply. So then we have blackberries and a perennial system that can constantly be harvested. But I can do something this simple. I can take a first-year cane, bend it over, bury the tip in the ground, it'll root, cut it off that year, pull that out of the ground, and sell it as a plant. So plants, to me, plants and trees, especially of perennial nature, are definite investments, and they're long-term investments, because they continue to create an ROI. I think planting corn is also an investment. It's just a much shorter term and I think far riskier investment. I get one season for it to grow and produce, and if it fails, I'm done. If I plant a bunch of trees and bushes and vines and shrubs, and in the first season they don't grow as much as they should, but even half of them survive, I'm still looking at an incredible ROI five years down the road. So trees and plants are an investment. Education is an investment. One of the reasons you listen to this show, hopefully, is you feel that it provides you an education, that you learn things that you would not learn otherwise. Maybe you even hear me say things that you've heard other people say, but I say them in a little bit different way that actually make them go inside. I've been told for a lot of people that's one of the things they find value in the work that I do, that I make things that they've always wanted to understand as something they can understand and can use. So education is a huge investment, and, and it's... It's this fundamental underlying reality that education is investment used to sell people on a lifetime of debt for an education that generally doesn't pay for itself. We call them college degrees. Now, I have to always say this when I do this because some people don't listen and some people are listening for the first time. I am not anti-college. I am anti-college for everyone. I think college, and that's, what, that's how it's marketed today. You are nothing if you don't go to college. A degree will pay for itself no matter what it's in. These are both lies. There are people that don't belong in college, and there are people that do belong in college. There are things college is really good for, and there's things college is really bad for. And, they're, they're, and, and I can say that with any type of uh, uh, structural educational system. Most people should probably not go to chef school, culinary school. And most successful chefs will tell you that. Very few are like, yeah, you should, you should definitely go to chef school. Right? I said, go get a job in a, in a, in a, even if you're going to go, go get a job in a restaurant and learn the business and see if it's really what you want to invest in before you do that on an idea. In other words, part of your due diligence. And we have some really great, even famous chefs that have never spent a day in culinary school because they're more concerned with the education than the certification. So when I say education, I mean it's actually learning things. And then I actually broke out, and this ties in closely with education, but skill set. Because I believe that being educated is understanding, being aware of, knowing about, being able to explain a thing, and a skill set is being able to do a thing. And they do not always translate. You can learn about sculpting in every way possible. 
to where you can look at a piece of art from a certain year and tell people just by the way it's done who did it and what year it was done in. You certainly are educated about sculpting. You can explain, for instance, if you learn about sculpting rock like granite or marble, you can learn about all the differences of the tools used. You can explain the advantages and disadvantages of marble versus granite if there is one. I don't even know because I'm not educated there. It doesn't mean you can sculpt. doesn't mean you can sculpt. Here would be a more personal one for me. I could learn everything that it's possible to learn about how to sing, and I'm still going to sing like shit. I can take vocal lessons from, like, if you could find the best vocal coach in the world, and I could dedicate the next year of my life to becoming a better vocalist, I am still going to suck. I do not have the innate talent to be a singer. I guarantee you I could be better, and it'll still be shit. And that, if, if nothing else, that should clearly define the difference between education and skill set development. I can be highly educated in how oil's refined. Doesn't mean I can go build a refinery. Or do the first thing that's mechanically necessary to build a refinery. Or even build one component that goes in a refinery. Right? I can be a really good mechanic, but I may not have the skill set to build an alternator from spare parts. I just know how to swap an alternator out. And it just continues. So really, and the reason I bring this up is if you're going to invest in something, then you need to understand the investment. And it's very important then that we don't confuse investing in education with an investing in your own innate ability to do a thing. Now, I have no doubt the well-educated person about sculpting, who's also developed a sculpting skill set, will become a better sculptor than one who's only focused on the skill set. They both have value in different ways. But skill set development is incredibly valuable as an ROI. And usually the thing that it requires the most from you is time, and this is how we evaluate, is this worth doing? Right now I have gentlemen outside my door, that's why the dogs are barking, you hear some background noise, they're, they're setting up a table that they've already built that they're going to pour a concrete surface top on. Okay, it's going to be a beautiful table. It's going to be ready. It better be ready. I'm looking at him. You can read my lips. You know, by by the time the workshop hits next week, it will it'll serve us well there. Um, we're having it built out of like materials that will last forever instead of buying like a $500 off the shelf product that will warp outside. And I could have done it. I really think if I'm going to be happy and sign off and pay them the rest of their money, they're going to do a better job than I could have done. Or I, 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 I wouldn't pay them to do it. But part of the ROI calculation is I can build a table. It will take me time, and I already have that skill set. So to me, what I can do, what I'm doing right now is going to today, and this one podcast that I put out today, over time will make me more money than that table would that I would have spent a lot more time doing. So that's a straight time calculation. The interesting part to me, I've never poured a concrete countertop before. So, this would be more likely for something that I would invest in, in learning that skill set, right? How to affect, like, how to do this. So then my question to myself is, and if you do that, how many times in the 40 to 50 years that you have left on this world, God willing, do you think you'll use that skill? And my answer to that is, almost never. Almost never. So I'm going to invest in the skill sets primarily, especially at my age and my station in life, that have the greatest potential return for me. Ha, on the other, on the other hand, 
If I had thought a little differently when I was 20, I might have taught myself this skill because I might have used it hundreds of times doing it for other people and built a business on it. So just because a skill set doesn't translate to something that Bill sees is worthy doesn't mean it doesn't translate to Tom. Okay? Skill sets. Typical stocks and bonds and commodities, etc. I think that as agorists, we tend to shy away from this because it's the system. It's the beast. We want to cut off the head of the beast. No, I want to beat the beast. I want to live the best life I can in spite of the fact that the beast doesn't want me to. And that means sometimes I play outside of the beast's arena and sometimes I play inside the beast's arena. Stocks and bonds, mutual funds, etc. not only have a good track record when properly invested in, but there's actually ways to leverage them that are very much knowns. We have historical things that we can look at and say, if you do these things and you follow these rules, over time you tend to win. Now, I also say that the stock market doesn't return anywhere as well as you are led to believe by financial liars. I've seen financial liars make this case. Well, look, okay, yeah, the stock market went down 56% in this year. But look what happens every year it goes down that much. The next year, it went up 62%. So it went down 52%, but it went up 62%. If you'd gotten out, you'd have lost the opportunity to make 60% on your money. Okay, if a stock goes down 52% and then up 62%, you're still in the hole. Because math, I'm not going to explain it. You can figure it out if you doubt me. But a stock has to go up by double what it goes down to get back to where it was. Simple. Easy to understand. Totally just goes right past people because, you know what, they learn complex calculus, but they don't learn basic math that relates to actual money. Stocks and bonds, etc., are really worth investing in. I like vehicles like Roth IRAs that allow me to take some portion of my money, stick it in there, make as much as I can off it, and never pay any tax on it. People say, what if they take it away? Then I'll stop you. See, this is where people get stupid. Well, what if they do this? Well, what if they... Well, I'll react to it then. Because if you're going to use the what-if game, then there's literally no investment you can make. Well, what if Bitcoin crashes? What if this happens? What if gold... What if a meteor hits Earth and turns all metal that's, that's non-ferrous into gold? You know, what if your aunt had balls? She'd be your uncle. For God's sakes, what if? These investments make sense as a portion of what we're doing. Obviously, I don't see them as the only thing to do, or I wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't be in the middle of a long list. Next up, and this is the one that I put kind of further down the list just because every self-proclaimed agorist leads with it, and that's crypto assets, which includes Bitcoin, but is not limited to Bitcoin. I think that right now, if you are a person who whenever somebody starts talking about cryptocurrency, sticks your fingers in your ears and goes, la, 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 la. It is literally the biggest financial mistake that you can make in your life. In your life. That this is an emerging class of assets that solves one of the biggest problems humanity has, which is governments destroy the value of their own currency. I would like for you to show me a government that has not devalued their currency over time. Go ahead. I'll wait. I've got some Jeopardy music playing in the background. Would that help you? Name a government that did not devalue its currency over time. It's never happened. I don't care if the currency was based on gold initially anyway. I don't care if it was paper. I don't care what it was. Every government entity has devalued the currency that it uses to do its business. 
because it's good businessism for them to do it. And it's just very simple to understand why you would do this. If a currency is inflationary, it incentivizes spending, it incentivizes borrowing, and it incentivizes investing. This is an interesting thing. I watch it play out so quickly with my wife. I've talked about this cryptocurrency thing for a long time. And she's like, well, you have cryptocurrency. I don't have to worry about it. What's mine is yours. And she's right about that, but it doesn't mean she has the skill set and the knowledge and actually the understanding. So we have this customer who always wants to pay us in cryptocurrency which for eggs, which I have no problem with, except it's not my business. Okay? The egg business is Dorothy's business. I don't touch it. Yes, I pick up eggs. Yes, I take care of the birds. But when it comes to the handling, the packaging, the distribution, the sale of, and even the conversation with potential customers about eggs, I don't touch it. It's not mine. I want it to be hers because I want her to have some things that are hers. It's not like, oh, you just do the shit and I'm not doing nothing. Because like I said, I contribute to the business, but I don't touch the business aspect of the business. Right? So if, if there's going to be cryptocurrency involved, I want her to have it. So I finally got her to like do it. It wasn't really obstinance or reluctance. It was just like, eh, it's one of those things I don't have to worry about. So I'm like, well, let's go get you a wallet. And I use Jack's Liberty. I'm like, everybody tells me about Coinami. Why don't you use Coinami? So I found it for us to install this. She installs it. So I'm like, okay, he wants to pay in Litecoin. I open my wallet. I'm like, I'll send you $10 worth of Litecoin to make sure everything's working right. So boop, scan it, boop, send her to Litecoin. And she has 10 bucks worth of Litecoin. And then our customer pays her for like, it was like six dozen eggs or something, so a significant amount. And then I realized like, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to have any Litecoin anymore because I sold all the Litecoin I was holding back in December at a loss, converted it to Bitcoin because the two move in concert, so it let me take a capital loss against some trades that I made to the positive. Okay? Agora's thinking. And somebody had paid me for MSB with Litecoin, and it had almost doubled since they paid me. And I forgot that I even had some Litecoin in there. It wasn't even on my portfolio tracker. So I'm like, you know what? Why don't you just take all the Litecoin? So I sent her all the Litecoin. So she, she has it in her wallet. Let's say it was 150 bucks, and it ended up being worth like almost 200 a few days later. And here's the thing that it makes the point. It's not about the direct ROI. You know what she said looking at it? I want more. I want more. Because a currency that deflates over time, meaning becomes worth more instead of worth less, incentivizes saving. And there are people in the crypto asset space that call themselves investors, traders, whatever, and what they are is savers. If you're, if you're hodling, right? H <laughs> holding misspelled, right? Um, If you're doing that, you're a saver. It's an investment, but are you a spender or are you a saver? Well, you're a saver. And that is something that crypto has brought to this country that was sorely needed. People who are willing to put money away and leave it alone to save it, to have a nest egg. And that's why your government does not want a deflationary currency. Because what happens if people tend to sit on their money? It's not good for the powerful and the elite. It's actually good for us. And this whole thing about there'll be a shortage of money and nobody will be able to afford to build a house or whatever. No, bullshit. Saving is good for the people and bad for the elites. So crypto reverses, not, not all crypto, 
is deflationary, but Bitcoin is an incredibly deflationary asset. Asset has only begun to deflate. Only just begun. So I talk about that enough that I won't say any more now. Charity, I'll hit real quick because I already kind of mentioned in the beginning. But again, I see acts of charity as investments. So even if it's a direct act of charity. For instance, I had an employee one time. His name was Eric. And he was a bit of an odd bird, but he was doing good work for me. And he, I was developing him basically as a creative marketing writer. So he was learning that skill. He was getting very good at it. And uh, I try not to get too close to people that work for me. Because you, you then you make emotional versus logistical decisions, which is bad in business. And um, But one way or another it came out that he didn't own a television set. I'm like, What? Now, I'm, this wasn't so he could watch CNN or whatever, but I mean, I see incredible value in having a TV, even if you don't have cable. Because, you know, by then we had, it wasn't that long ago, we had, you know, YouTube and shit like that. So, like, just the fact that you can throw that up on a screen and watch it, there's so much you can learn. And again, this guy was an employee, and I was trying to get him to think more creatively marketing, and whether you like it or not, some of the most effective marketing on the planet you will see on your television set. So if you're aware of what's being done, it's like decrypting the trick the magician does instead of believing in the magic. So I went and I bought him a television set. And it was like a flat screen, and it was probably like a 32-inch TV, which even at the time, they had come down so much in cost, it was like 180 bucks or something, somewhere in the $200 range. I saw that as an investment. If I give this person who works for me a $200 TV set, Free and clear. And I didn't say this is part of your paycheck. This is your bonus. I, I, You work for me here, and we've become friends here. And as a friend, understanding your place in life, and I can't pay you that much more, and I know you won't do this for yourself, this is a gift. Still an investment. It was an investment, one, because he worked for me, and I thought it would make him a better employee, and it did. But it was also an investment because I knew he wouldn't work for me forever. He was the kind of guy that you're kind of grooming to figure their shit out, so they can go do their own thing. And I knew that that investment would continue to pay dividends long after I ceased knowing about it. And that's how char good charity works that way. I can with confidence know this check I just made out for $500 to charity XYZ is going to continue to do good things for people beyond the initial $500. They're going to be a good steward of this money, right? All right, so that's charity. A business, we kind of, I've, I've hit on that a bit already too, but a, a, a business that's actually a business. That means you can sell it, you can transfer it, or at minimum, it works for you when you're not working. I'm going to go on vacation, not next month, the month after, in May, and I'm going to go back to Florida like we do so often, and I'm going to spend about 12 days on the beach with my family, fishing for sharks and sea trout and stuff like that, and getting sand in the crack of my ass and what have you. My income is not going to stop during that period of time. And in fact, the way I've set things up over the years and learned from my own you know, ebbs and flows, the things I do prior to it generally make my cash flow increase while I'm not here. Because that's a business. If I had Jack's drywall, and I'm only billing, I'm one guy, I'm an S-corp, right? And I'm only billing when I'm out drywalling. And... But I'm only earning income while I'm working, and I go on vacation. Just because I saved up and, and put money in the kitty like a battery to pay myself 
vacation time when I'm not there so that my cash flow doesn't stop personally out of the business doesn't mean that it's a business. I'm really self-employed. I'm not in business. Those are very different things. The business is an entity of itself that continues to do things even when you're not there. The business has a brand. The business has value. That doesn't mean a one-man show where the one man does all the work can't be a business. But it's a clear functionality issue. You stop, money stops, not a business. Businesses are investments because they don't stop when you stop. And in general, a business can be sold, even if it's just selling the brand. Um, stored food and emergency goods are, are investments, even if they don't go directly up in value. Because what, what is water worth when you don't have it? Remember when people flipped out during one of the hurricanes? I don't remember which one, but somebody put a picture of a case of water at Best Buy on social media, and everybody started screaming and shrieking about boycotting Best Buy. Best Buy is not in the business of selling cases of water, right? That's not what they do. That's not their business model. No one's like, you know what? We need two cases of water. Better run to Best Buy. No, people go to Best Buy to buy electronic shit, and then they're standing in line. They're like, I'm thirsty, and there's a cooler there. Oh, there's water in there, and instead of buying an energy drink or some sugar crap, I'm going to buy a bottle of water for a buck thirty. So all the Best Buy did, because people were wanting to buy water in cases, because there was water there and not other places, was say dollar thirty times however many bottles, and that's you know sixty bucks, whatever it was. And then people were shrieking that it was price gouging. They were selling for the same price that it always sold it for. Difference was people were willing to come in there and buy a case. Why? People pay what something is worth to them at the time. So when we lay up just something as simple as reserve water, right, and then something goes wrong where we can't get water, but we have water, it's worth to us what we would pay for it if we didn't at the time. In other words, it's given us a hell of a return of investment. If you were in your home during the great Texas blackout and you had no way to cook your food, You had no way to keep the lights on. You had no way to keep your pipes from freezing and bursting. You knew how much that was going to cost you. And somebody offered you a small propane cooktop, a small propane heater, five grill-sized tanks of propane, a generator, and ten five-gallon cans of gasoline. You're going to tell me that in that situation you wouldn't pay more for them than you could go buy them for right now? Of course you would. That's why people run out and start buying up everything they can get in the middle of one of these disasters. When we lay these things up for us, we're not investing in them for the value they have today. We're not investing in them for the value they have tomorrow. We're investing in them for what they'll do for us in a shortfall. We're investing in them because they keep us from coming off our path. They keep us from being destroyed. They keep us from being knocked down and beaten up. Or they mitigate how bad we're knocked down and beaten up. We don't have to spend three weeks coming back from a problem. We spend one week. That's two weeks of your life. That's an investment when you get to keep it. Next up, and this is the one that everybody, when you talk about crypto, that's anti-crypto comes up with, precious metals. I don't see why you invest in Bitcoin when you can invest in gold. Really? Okay. Then you don't understand ROI. Right? I'm serious. You don't. Like, go look at what what you would have... If you put $500 in gold 
or $500 in Bitcoin at any time more than six months ago, all the way back to when Bitcoin was invented. Just pick a random time. That's why we invest in crypto. That doesn't mean we don't invest in gold. Like the little girl from the Taco Bell commercial said, why not both? So silver and gold have very long track records as being stores of value. Silver has a lot going for it as a commodity to do things that only silver can do well. In the, in the world of medical and electronics and things like that, there's things that really silver is the only thing that can do what it does well. And it's the most cost-effective thing, as expensive as it is, to do those things. And it also results in what's known as the inelastic demand. So there's a certain amount of silver in an iPad, for instance. And uh, silver today is trading at what, I guess, somewhere between 26 and 27 bucks, right? So let's say the silver market explodes, which there's some scuttlebutt about maybe it's going to happen, and it goes from $26 to $60 in the next 10 weeks. All right, pretty quick. What is Apple going to do? Not buy it to make iPads with? Use something that's more expensive? The demand for the industrial use of silver is inelastic, meaning as long as I can sell the iPad, as long as my iPad sales are steady, I'm buying the silver that I need to make the iPad, whether it goes up or not. See, gold doesn't have that inelastic demand. That's one of the reasons I think that in many ways silver is a superior metal, but it's certainly not the same store of value that gold is, historically or, or currently. But both of them, I think, are worth investing in. I don't think they're worth investing into the exclusion of other investments. And I, I really hope that it's just kind of understood with how much um, variety I'm putting into this effort today that I'm totally opposed to all in on anything. Because when I hear people especially in the crypto space. It's an illogical argument, this whole, well, I think real estate's a better investment. Well, I own real estate. And most of the people saying that own no real estate. Like, I had one guy just on and on and on in a comments thread on YouTube. And I, I mean, I don't mean on and on like he said something, I said something. Like, he just kept going. Like, holy shit, how many comments is this guy going to make? Like, every five minutes he thought of something new. And finally I said, well, how much land do you own? And then all the comments stopped. So I know what the answer is. None. People that object to an investment by bringing up another investment seldom understand either, in my experience. Um, and I think that's really the case with precious metals. I think that precious metals has a problem similar in a way to what crypto has. And that's there's so many people that have built an entire persona on being advocates of them. So there's entire YouTube channels run by people that are supposed crypto experts that I bet you don't own much. You know, or at least when they started, they didn't. Right? They're not actually practicing what they preach, but it's a good thing to build on. So this leads to a whole lot of looky-loos that want to become convinced in this thing, and maybe they get a hold of a little bit of it, and then they want to believe that one day it's going to be you know, worth a fortune. So the person ends up with like 50 ounces of silver, which is not a bad investment to have. But they want to be, they want to convince themselves that one day that, that 50 ounces of silver is going to be worth $5 million. And if you go out and you drink enough silver Kool-Aid, you'll be able to do it. And I think it leads to this myopic attitude towards specific investments. And there's people that are just as myopic with mutual funds. Dave Ramsey. Anyway, I digress, right? But I mean, Dave Ramsey does some great work and he's done a lot to help a lot of people. 
but his advice on cryptocurrency and gold are as bad as any ever given infinity. As bad as any other ever given. And his whole thing is just invest in basic good mutual funds at 10% of your income minimum and you'll be fine. And the, and the response I have to that is maybe it depends. How old were you when you started? How long do you have to go? What particular part of the lottery do you hit when you retire? Etc. Like this is this whole myopic view of any asset class is really dangerous. And it's, it's the thing that screws people up. Um, I also would say that original content or technology you create is an investment. They're evergreen products. And you say, well, how's that different than a business? Because there's plenty of people that have made a bunch of YouTube videos that maybe make four or five hundred dollars a month from Google, but they don't treat it like a business. It's really not a business. It's just and it's sitting on a it's a sharecropping item because Google could always change the deal or whatever. But right now, it's making the money. And if you really want to understand what's the value of a YouTube channel that makes you $500 a month, people would say, well, it's $500. No, it's not. Because it's, it's mostly, or maybe a person that's not really making many videos anymore, that they just have some good content out there. It's very passive. So if you want to compare it to like a passive, consistent amount of income, go find out how much money do you have to put in an annuity to get $500 a month to spit out of it you know, for the next 10 years. And that's what that's worth. How much money do you have to put in the bank, in a CD, to get it to spit out $500 of income? That's what it's worth. That's what makes it an investment. Or if you are in a business, you can have an investment within an investment. So I have a business, and then I come out with a product that the business sells. The business itself is an investment, especially if it has other income uh, streams. But the product is now an investment that the company holds, and I own the company, so I own both investments. So if you think about it this way, this is the blogger or the vlogger or the podcaster that writes a book. Now the book is an income-producing investment. It's an asset that's putting money in their pocket every month that's independent of what they do with their business. But this leads me to... Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on this because before I, I go to the next thing, I want to say, in honesty, anything that continues to provide for you or create future insurance after you do it should be seen as an investment. And as an agorist, I'm going to do the things like that that make the most sense for me, no matter what the state thinks or, or hates about it. I'm going to mitigate risk, whether that risk is losing money, or I'm mitigating risk in that if the state catches me doing something they say I shouldn't be doing, what's the penalty? And it's a real simple thing in many instances to build risk into the math. For instance, when Uber and Lyft and all that started and people were getting fines in New York City for operating, you know, maybe as a renegade cab instead of Uber and Lyft because Uber and Lyft were not allowed to be there, right? Um, people looked at it this way. Well, what's the fine? What's the fine? And what does the cost of, what's the cost of a taxi medallion and how much money can I make? And that was built into the equation. In some instances, the risk of defying the state is a long trip to a place called Club Fed, right? Federal prison. That risk-reward ratio is generally not a good one, even if it's high, right? Because the risk is catastrophic. But if, if, if the activity allows you to make five grand a week, 
and the risk is a $2,500 fine, if you put away, you know, half your money the first week, leave it in a bucket, you've got insurance against the future. So we need to think that way, not just with risk because we might get a fine, but risk because we could lose. Or risk because we could be down, not have the money to fix it, and lose the entire thing. Always think that way. So I want to t kind of explain to you one of the reasons for doing this show was, one, yes, being on, on, on the Corbett Report brought it to the forefront. There was things I wanted to say I didn't have time to say there, and I thought saying it with my audience would be good. But the other thing is this whole new normal shit. And you guys know how I feel about the word normal. I'm not interested in normal, new or old, because normal is a sheep. Normal is doing what you're told. Normal is being controlled. Normal is getting in a car, driving to work and home every day, and hating your job and hating your life, and paying constantly for a house that you'll never own, and being in debt for perpetuity until you get on Social Security and then waiting to die. So normal, I'm not interested in. But when they say new normal today, and new normal is a term that's been used as long as I can remember terms being used, people have said, it's the new normal. Susie Orman called it the new normal when her advice resulted in many of her people that listened to her losing half their wealth. She just said it was a new normal, you're going to work longer. That's when I quit my job and started a podcast. Just to be, show you how I feel about people's attitudes of normal. It wasn't the only reason I did it, but it was kind of the whole way that people were moving at that time. And good investors tend to move counter to the way people are moving now, And they move in the way that people will move tomorrow. Understand that. And in this world of the new normal, there's, there's probably never been a time where people are going to move as much differently tomorrow as they think they will today. And that spells opportunity. So I, I saved my quote of the day today for the end here instead of the beginning. And this is by a guy named Bill Ackman, who's a well-known business person that I don't really know well, but I really like this quote when I found it. He said, I'm not emotional about investments. Investing is something where you have to be purely rational and not let emotion affect your decision-making, just the facts. So we do not make investment decisions based on our emotions. We do make investment decisions based on what we know the emotional impact of things will be on other people. Because most people do live their life, instead of being proactive, they live, live a reactionary life. This is why many of you laughed at people that couldn't find toilet paper about this time last year because you didn't care. You're like, well, I'm a prepper, so toilet paper doesn't go bad. So if nothing else, I have a few jumbo packs upstairs, so I, I don't care. I'm not worried about this. I'll, and if, if everything goes to pot, I'll figure out how to wipe my own rear end one way or another. I can deal with this. I'm not going to be out fighting with people at Costco for the last roll of Charmin. Right? And that's because you looked as a prepper and you made investments in emergency supplies based on the emotional response that people would have in a situation where things were no longer normal. You understand that? The reason you lay up food is because you know what the emotional response to a food shortage is going to be. That's investing. That's what we do. We look at things very pragmatically, very logically, very much in our Vulcan mode. I've done shows on real estate where I talked about this. You never buy a property where you let emotion factor into the price. The price is based on the real value of the property. And it's one of the places people are somewhat protected because 
A lender is going to order a freaking appraisal, and they're not going to exceed the value of the appraisal in the amount that they're going to lend. Okay? So we get an artificial little bubble of protection. There's a lot of things in life we don't get that for. And neither do them. That When I say them, I mean the masses. So when you look at the ground in front of you today, and you look logically at the things that are likely to happen in the future... Then you say to yourself, and what will the masses do when they respond to this? And you know the masses will respond with emotion. And since you know that, and you know that human emotion is dramatically consistent in how it responds to various things, anger, feigned outrage, panic buying, FOMO, that's fear of missing out for those that don't know they've been under a rock for a decade, and that they're going to jump into something, you preposition yourself based on that landscape and that logical progression and the inevitable overly emotional response of the other side, right? Or the, or the masses. I wouldn't even say the other side. All right. So with that, I want to like the last thing here. I want to talk about function stacking. So in permaculture, we talk about function stacking all the time. So we put our chicken house in an area that makes sense for the chickens, And we know we have to go to the chicken house every day, maybe twice a day, let the chickens in and out. So maybe we do some plantings along the way of some things that are good for chickens in their compost pit and maybe good for us to eat for breakfast. So we go out in the morning, we pick the chicken's food up, and we take the compost with us, and we dump it, and we let the chickens out. And on the way back, we pick some herbs to cook with our eggs that we just got from the chicken. Now we've accomplished two or three things in one shot. And then maybe we say, hey, you know, the sun hits this side of the chicken coop really hard. This is, I can put up a trellis and grow this plant. And that plant will provide shade and keep the coop cooler. And it will provide food for me and the chickens. And it can do, you know, maybe it provides biomass. And so you understand function stacking pretty well if you're in the world of permaculture. How can this thing do more than one thing? This is how we have to look at our investments. Especially when we look at investments that have incredible potential to be leveraged not in the conventional way, as in I've extended debt against it. But, for instance, real property. I have a piece of real property. And Robert Kiyosaki, famous for Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is a total fabricated story that never actually happened, by the way, but still teaches some really great results. I just hate the fact that he won't be honest about the fact that it never happened. Um, in that book, he says that most Americans think that their house, their home, is their biggest asset. It's actually their greatest liability. Because since they fund their leverage on it, their debt, with a job, the minute the job goes away, the house is no longer an asset. It's a liability, something I can't afford that I have debt against that's going to do me financial harm. And most people don't have sufficient equity to be able to quickly liquidate. In other words, that real estate is not liquid in reference to its ability to liquidate the debt on the other side of it. Plus, I have to live somewhere. So if I break even, that's not good enough. Well, he didn't really ever give you a solution to this, other than I guess he is an advocate of, you know, being a landlord. But how do you rectify that? And the most simple answer is, I have this asset. It is an asset. It's also, it's not a liability. The land is not a liability. The, the house is not a liability. The debt... So you got to separate the two. The control of the property, place I can sleep, raise my kids, throw a ball with my grandson, that is an asset. 
The mortgage is the liability. And when you separate those two, then you say, okay, then how can the asset cover the liability? So if somebody has a couple acres, and let's say they have a modest home, they're kind of set up you know, for homesteading, and they realize, well, self, this property all in, taxes, insurance, everything, let's say costs you $1,600 a month. Okay? What can I do with the property to make at least $1,600 a month off the property with minimal labor inputs? So if that person then says, hey, you know what? These kind of prefab little tiny house things are pretty cool, pretty hot, and they put them on their own property, especially if they do it in a way because they live in the right kind of place where you know the government can't really get involved with it, and they start listing them on like you know Airbnb, and they start renting them out. And if they had to take on any debt, we factor that into the original money, and let's say that they have now a cash flow through, not a cash flow out, but a cash flow through of $2,000. And let's say they even financed a bit of this, so their total burden is now $1,800. They're positive $200. And all of it is paying the equity on the property. The property now pays for itself. It's done. It pays for itself. If you lose a job, whatever, as long as you can figure out how to feed yourself, you're not going to go homeless. Now it's actually an asset, and it's a, a valuable ROI as formative an investment. And it continues to increase in value simply by it being there. So if the property's big enough, maybe that person says, you know, you know what's even cheaper than putting tiny houses in? Hmm. Campsites. So they put in, a, you know, a couple, couple, four campsites. Really cool kind of glamping campsites. Much less overhead. They start renting those out. Maybe that can generate another $500 a month. Now we have a profitable asset in the form of an investment because we function stacked what the property can do. And if that person says, hey, what else can I do with this property? You know, if they set up a little wood shop and they start turning a hobby into a side hustle and they're making another four or $500 on projects a month. Okay, now this thing is no longer even, it's not even something you can call a liability because not only are we paying for it, we have enough diversity in the way that we're paying for it that we're probably not going to lose it all at once. And so you need to think about how we can stack these functionalities into our other investments. If you look at crypto assets, there's, you know, it's one thing to go buy cryptocurrency. It's another thing to sell a product or a service and sell some segment of it for cryptocurrency so that somebody else is making your investment for you instead of you making it for yourself. Especially if you sell a soft product, that evergreen product we talked about. So that ebook, that piece of software, that membership, whatever, anything like that, that if I sell five this week, my cost out to provide for those five people is the same as if I sell six or ten. Well, if I can sell 10% of that for crypto, and I just live on 90% otherwise for all my other investments and saving and whatever, then that 10% being, being invested in crypto assets has no real cost to me, and I'm using the business to leverage it into another investment. And, and we need to be thinking that way if you're going to survive, quote-unquote, the new normal. Because the new normal is going to be predicated upon people being obedient and doing what they're supposed to do in order to keep what they have. And this all leads kind of to the most important change in thinking that I'm going to give you in this episode. And that's realizing that when... You, you invest in something that provides something for you. 
that you would have otherwise had to buy, we tend to think of that as a savings. So let's say that you have, and it doesn't even matter what, so I'm not going to put any correlation onto this, but let's just say that you have an ongoing expense of $100 a month, and it's not really a luxury expense. This is something you kind of need. Maybe you don't, like, you won't die without it, but, like, one part of your life or another really is going to suffer for this not being done. If it's animals, they're going to die. So if it was chicken feed, you, you had poultry and you have $100 a month, or maybe you're spending more, but you can reduce your feed cost by $100 a month. Well, most people would think of is why well, I saved $100 a month. You shouldn't see it that way. One of the things we learned in the richest man in Babylon is a portion of all that I earn is mine to keep. And what that means is it doesn't get, like, people think they kept the money if they spent it. So I didn't use it for bills or whatever. I went out and bought, you know, a case of beer. It's not yours to keep then. You got beer instead. You drink it, you piss it out, it's gone. You rented it. Right? You can only rent beer, you don't buy it. It's an old saying, with a good reason. So when we save money, we tend to just not really think about it that much after we've done that. We just, it's good. I've saved money. We don't see it as what it really is, increased cash flow. So if I was doing well and I was able to provide, pay for all my bills, take care of all my needs, most of my wants, and all of a sudden I ended up with an income stream giving me an extra $100 a month, the smart thing to do with that $100 a month is invest in something. My education, my business, put it back into it, uh, Roth IRA, cryptocurrency, I don't care what. But the smart thing to do is to take, this is extra money. This is, this is, this is exceeding my cash flow of needs. It's a portion that I've earned that is mine to keep. And it's an easy one because I've been fine without it up till now. How is it different if we're not emotional, if we're logical like we're supposed to be, like today's quote, than getting $100 more? And the answer is mathematically it's not. At the end of the month, my profit is $100 higher because of this. But I don't need it. That is the best portion that is yours to keep. And many people with business, side hustles, etc., you'll quickly find out the quickest ROI is leaning out unnecessary expenses. Sometimes it's you're doing a thing that costs a certain amount of money to do, and I can invest in this other thing that will reduce my expenses by speeding it up, by making it more effective, by making it something I don't have to think about anymore. By freeing up time that can then be used elsewhere in the business for more profitable activities. Whatever that is, if not all, a significant portion of it should be harnessed and invested, and that is function stacking, and that is directly counter to the new normal. The new normal is going to be the government will keep finding ways to give away more money and devalue the dollar, and they will keep more and more contingencies upon what you have to do to be a good little sheep and get patted on the head and get your money. UBI is coming, and it's never going to be for the benefit of mankind. But the person that thinks the way I've talked about today, give me all the UBI you want to. Go ahead. Go ahead. And I hear things like, well, that proposal like, well, you know, they're going to make where you can get UBI, but you can't spend it on cryptocurrency. Okay. So what can I spend it on? Well, like groceries and stuff. Okay. 
So why don't I spend that money on groceries and my other money? See, like, you, you, I'm sorry. That's, that, that is limited thinking, and that is defeatist thinking, and it's something I don't really have a lot of time for. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, remember, one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you do that, you help us out no matter what you buy. And because I practice always be frugal, never be cheap, almost everything that I recommend, when some way or another you can see it as an investment in your lifestyle. Um, here's a really great one. This is the X-Power, spelled exactly that way, one X and then the word power, A2 series multipurpose air duster. This thing is basically a mini leaf blower. This thing's powerful. I mean, it blows hard. And so what is the purpose of it? Mini duster. The main reason I bought it is I see my computers as investments. And your desktop style tower computers have little fans in them to cool them and all. And they blow. And that blow creates suck. And that suck pulls in dust. And dust gets in there. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but... Every so often, you should take a cover off of a desktop-style computer and blow all the dust out of it. Take it outside when you do it, by the way. More in there than you think there is. You get dust on electronics, you get problems. You get dust on heat sinks, you get failure to sink the heat. Heat is the enemy of electronics. You get fans jammed up. You get all kinds of problems with dust in electronics. It needs to be cleaned out. Minimum, I would say, once every six months, put it on your calendar, and that's minimum. Three is better. Take the cover off your, your, your desktop computers and blow them out. Again, take them outside when you do this. Unplug them, unplug all the cables, etc. And air is the way to do this because there's certain things that touching and prodding and pulling and stuff like that can screw up with electronics. Not to mention there can be residual electricity. There can be issues there. And we'll just let, let it go at that. And, and air is your, your friend in getting rid of all this stuff. Well, the thing that most people use for this is canned air which is a stupid idea. Canning air is stupid. It was a good you know, gag on Spaceballs, right, the Perrier, but in reality, canned air is stupid. All we need to do is move air quickly. We don't need to put it in a can to do that, and then the can freezes up, and the can poops out before all the air is out of it, and it's just, it's, and you got to buy another one, and then it's creating a waste product. So what you need is a good little blower. So when I decided I wanted one of these, I'm like, well, I'll just go get one. Surely there's like a million options. There are, and they all suck. Well, they don't suck. They blow, but they don't blow hard enough. Uh, they, they, they need to have enough power to do the job. And I was shocked. I was like, really? It's 2021, and getting a good dust blower is hard? And I found this thing. Holy shit. Like, if you can't blow the dust out of a thing with this, you have a problem. You've let things get really, really bad, and they may not even be recovered. Like, if this won't do it, I don't know what will. Now, one thing I wanted to tell you, if you go look at it on Amazon, you're going to see the word vacuum in the title. There's no vacuum. Quoting the space balls again, it does not go from suck to blow. It's blow only. Um, I think they put vacuum in the title because it got more search results for them, which is smart because anybody looking for uh, a computer vacuum would find this thing and goes, it's pretty cool. I have not done a video on it yet. That's why it's, it's, I've had it for a couple months. And I've meant to bring it around, and it's one of those things like, I'm going to do a video, I'm going to do a video. I'm like, today, I'm just going to bring it around. I do have a write-up for this in, at TSPAS today, and there's a video of a really good YouTuber showing you how powerful this thing is. It's what sold me. 
Like he blows his blows it into his mouth. He looks like an idiot, but it was like it did make a point. Like it really made a point about how powerful this was. Uh, somebody already said these are great for when you're washing motorcycles, the, the cooling fins to get water out of them, uh, or cleaning chrome so it doesn't spot. I would say detailing cars. There's other things it will do, but cleaning electronics is what it's really, really great at. And at the price, it will pay for itself quickly. What's the what's the what's the value in extending the life of a computer a couple of years? Because it's easily what you're doing. Plus, not buying canned air, so it is a dun 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 investment. And I would put it in the tools classification of investments. Again, it's made by X Power, and there may be other good products like it on the market. I couldn't find one. This was the old, like this took, I, I think sometimes people don't realize how much time I put into a T-SPAS product. It because, and I do it not because I'm altruistic and I want you to get the best product. I do. But what's most important to me first is I want the best product and then I share it with you. And so if I'm going to invest in something, I want it to last and I want it to do what it's supposed to do. Because honestly, I, I've, I've played around with, like I've had friends that have things like this and like, well, let me try yours. And it was like, I could literally get a soda straw and blow air harder through it with my mouth, then this thing works. This thing here, this is a miniature, hardcore leaf blower. So anything that you can do with that, you can do with this. All right. So with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day as we launch a theme week based on a band, the Moody Blues. This song is called Your Wildest Dreams, and I believe this was the album that kind of like brought Moody Blues back from the dead. Like, they released an album in, like, 68 or 69, and then, like, until, like, the mid-'80s, no one even heard from them anymore. And then they, they came back with a couple really big hits and a couple really big albums, and this was on the first album. This was, like, 84 or 86, somewhere in there. And what this song's about, actually, the, 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 the band member who wrote it thought it would be a song nobody really took seriously, nobody really liked. It was kind of like a filler song for the album. And it really took off and hit hard. I think it's because it hits a very core... Uh, value to people, which is thinking back to what might have been, right? And I think Billy Ray Cyrus had a song called What Might Have Been, right? One of his good songs, not many of them, but anyway, I digress. Um, Wildest Dreams is really about thinking back about this girl, this woman, that it didn't work out with, but what if it did? How would his life been different? And I think that, you know, especially when we look back at potential romantic relationships, we have a tendency to forget the bad and remember only the good. And then, and then with that, it's almost like a Star Trek episode talking about, you know, like uh, the multiverse and all, like every decision would change the outcome in the future and all of them actually exist. And we start kind of going through that in our minds. And, uh, I think it's fun. It's a good escape, but I look at it like watching TV and, and like watching sci-fi or something, something that doesn't really directly benefit you as an investment. And the reason is investments are about what we do today and what it gives us tomorrow. And what we did or didn't do in the past that did or didn't give us something today is something we no longer control. So we can use it to make better choices going forward. But we shouldn't spend any more time on there than necessary for that. What we should focus on is what we can do today so that we have a better tomorrow. And you know what I'm going to say, if times get tough, or even if they don't.